Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, and thank you for joining me for the 91st episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is the emotion revolution. I'm joined by Leonard Milodino. He is the author of Emotional, How Feelings Shape Our Thinking. The publisher is Pantheon. Leonard received his PhD in theoretical physics from the University of California, Berkeley. He's been a fellow at the Max Planck Institute and has been on the faculty at Caltech. His previous award-winning books include two written with Stephen Hawking and another written with Deepak Chopra. Welcome to the show, Leonard. Great to be here, Dan. Okay, well, looking forward to it. Uh, Why don't you give us a brief overview of the book just to get us going? Well, the book is called Emotional, How Feelings Shape Our Thinking, and it's about uh, the emotion revolution that's occurred in the scientific world over the past 10 or so years, Uh, a revolution in which the way we view emotion and our understanding of how it's produced and what it's for uh, has completely turned upside down. And I think for for most of your listeners or for most ordinary people, one of the main points of of that revolution is that uh, emotion is not as people over the ages have thought, counterproductive and anti-rational and something that gets in the way. But quite to the contrary, emotion is necessary for uh, your existence, for your thinking. It uh, is an aid to what we think of as rational thought. And even beyond that, it's inextricable. It's, it's intimately tied with your rational thought, cannot really be separated. And it's a useful, good thing and we should all be grateful that we have it. And all animals, uh, at least all the way down to fruit flies, uh, experience emotion. So it's something that's really very necessary in animal life. Okay. Yeah. No, I, one of the things I really found interesting about the book is, yes, it seems like we've moved to another stage. I, I came into this field in the you know, tail end of the 20th century. And Descartes' Air by Damasio mm-hmm. was uh, an important book for me. But it seems that in, in reading your book, there's really been another step change in terms of what the technology is allowed for and what our understandings are, uh, say, roughly from 2010 onward. Is that is that accurate, more or less? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Uh, the, the, the revolution in emotion has really been fueled by, by new technology. A couple of them, just to throw them out there real quickly so people get an idea of the power of that is... Um, one called optogenetics, which allows scientists to get into animals' heads. For, for now, it's only in animals because it, uh, you'll, you'll know why when I tell you, but they, they kind of <laughs> drill into the heads and they can use lasers and whatnot and chemical uh, uh, injections and, and, and they are able to set it up so they can stimulate specific neurons in an animal so they can turn a neuron on or off and, and see what that does, uh, sp- a specific neuron in, in, in animals. 
And that's been uh, a very good tool for for scientists. And and another uh, one, or really an area that has burgeoned and and, and brought a lot of uh, good information to the field is is connect home research, which is uh, the, the connect home is the map of the connectivity of the neurons in your brain. You have about a hundred billion neurons in your brain, and they're each connected to I don't know somewhere sometimes a thousand up to ten thousand other neurons. So it's an unimaginably large number of connections. And what scientists are learning uh, is that contrary to how they what they used to think, which is that the brain has certain very discrete, specific structures that are more or less independent. They talk to each other, but they do this or that in a very specific, defined way. It's really not like that, that most uh, or much of the brain function is distributed in the brain among many different regions and, and they're highly interconnected. And there are these networks uh, that are the important thing more than or at least as much as individual structures. And, and so those kinds of realizations and new technologies have really fueled this uh, motion revolution. Um, so staying with that, then, um, I want to go through some of the ways in which it was before this revolution and what the understanding now is. I think it'll just help listeners get oriented and, and kind of move through these contrasts. So let's just take them all maybe one at a time. So in the book, you mentioned basic emotions, uh, the old traditional view, uh, kind of talking Charles Darwin time and onward was there was no functional overlap between these so-called basic emotions. Where are we at now in that respect? So it's good that you mentioned Darwin because the traditional theory of emotion and the theory that most people hold, whether they realize it or not, but just the theory or the understanding of emotion that's in our society and our culture is comes from, from Darwin, who was the first to really uh, scientifically study emotion. And not exactly the first, but the first, let's say, modern person to do that. And he created a, a theory of um, emotion that is seems intuitive and and some superficial level is right but in generally if you look deeper in every almost every point that he said was stated was wrong and one of the uh, uh one of his ideas was that there are these uh basic emotions uh sadness happiness anger fear uh disgust and surprise those are the mo- those are the basic emotions and that each of those is set off by a tr- specific trigger in the environment. So there are reliable specific triggers that will set that will set off reliably a certain each emotion, and then each emotion in turn sets off a series of predictable, reliable um, reactions. So that's really like a computer uh, trigger goes in, uh, the computer uh, processes the trigger and creates the certain output and it's the same triggers create the same output. And so that was Darwin's idea and that there were these six um, major emotions and that, you, that they, they're all well-defined and separate. Today we know that that is not true, that um, there are scientists uh, think about uh, many, many emotions. They, uh, for instance, social emotions are very important, pride, embarrassment, jealousy, uh, there are thing, emotions called homeostatic emotions that used to be thought of as drives, such as sexual uh, desire, uh, hunger, uh, and uh, pain is considered uh, often an emotion. So there are, there are, there's a whole much larger universe of emotions today than, than Darwin believed. And, and, and even, even with that larger uh, collection of emotions, uh, the, the terms are, are understood to be not so 
um, not so definitive that each each term is really a category of emotions or maybe you would think of them as sub-emotions that are really different from each other. For example, there, you might be afraid of a snake or a scorpion and you're also afraid of uh, suffocation if, if that it comes to that. Waterboarding, for example, would, makes people extremely fearful when, with, when they undergo waterboarding, a kind of torture. And it's interesting that scientists have studied these both of those two type, types of fear and find that they're quite different and they have different um, pathways in the brain are activated uh, in, if, for these two different categories of, of emotion. They if it did, in fact, a study of somebody who had uh, amygdala, was, uh, was missing in a, a bilateral amygdala damage and could not did not feel certain types of fear, such as a snake or a scorpion, but did feel fear from suffocation. So, uh, so Darwin was wrong that even that the, those major categories are a single emotion. They're, 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 they're not. And they, and they also overlap. Fear and anxiety, for example, is a good example of how they might overlap. Uh, fear is a, is a reaction to something that's definite and threatening in your present uh, environment. Anxiety is uh, a reaction to something that is not definite. It's potential. It's not now. It's in the future. And yet, you can imagine situations where it's kind of fear and kind of anxiety. You hear you're you're in bed and you hear something downstairs at night. Is it something definite? It might be uh, your cat or, or something, sure. and you're not even sure if it's definite or not. At some point, it becomes more definite. At some point, it's less definite. And so there's a it's a spectrum. Emotions are like a rainbow, where um, you might call this red and that green, but there could be a reddish green or a reddish yellow. I mean, you may as well move over what you call, what frequency you call this, you give a name to. And that's kind of the way emotions work. And indeed, in modern uh, explorations, people have found that there are this great cultural variation in how we categorize and name our emotions. It's not that people in other uh, cultures don't feel the same things that we do, but they choose to name them, they choose different things to give names to. In one culture, for example, there's nothing... That, that corresponds to sadness, but there are names for other things that are perhaps types of sadnesses or, you know, so, so it's, again, it's like it's on the rainbow, but they don't, they didn't pick a color yellow and give it a name and give green a name. They gave yellow green a name. So sure. uh, in that sense, uh, in Darwin's categorization, we found that he, he was off base. Okay. So since 2010, you know, this shift has taken place uh, and yet you have, you know, there, you know, EQ itself takes it, name from uh, you know the work that John Mayer and Peter Salovey did. Uh, there's Daniel Goldman's book from 1995. Uh, is EQ, you know, kind of that field stayed up to date with where the science is at? What are the adjustments that's been necessary for for those people leaving Darwin aside? Well, so you know, EQ is is in the self help world. It, it, I guess you could call it a field where people try to train you or uh, in emotional intelligence and uh, and teach you about its importance, but in the academic world, it's not as much a field as it was a very important step, uh, an important paper, um, an important uh, realization that um, emotions are very critical in, in your success in the world and your personal success and how to study that. Uh, the book by Goldman made it a, a popular uh, made it popular in the in the general culture, and there have been a lot of books on it. Uh, that certainly 
that whole that the papers, the original papers and and follow up papers about the importance of emotion, about the importance of the importance of being able to detect and understand other people's emotions and to understand your own emotions and to communicate emotion uh, that that literature is is there and it's growing every year and people certainly uh, believe that uh, theory but it's it's it the the emotion revolution doesn't really uh, change that one way or the other it, it's it's uh, it's a difference in in how we how we view emotion but it, it doesn't change the importance of emotion or the role that emotion plays in our success Okay, fair enough. Um, so I, I love the fact that you mentioned that there was this Thomas Willis, who was a 17th century London doctor, and that's kind of how we got to the term emotion from Mouvre. So maybe can you explain that a bit to to listeners? Yeah, so it's interesting to think about how we think. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the most basic way that we, well, let's just maybe start by doing away with the word think and call it information process. How do we in process information? All animals must process information. In some sense, uh, plants and bacteria also do, but in a more sophisticated sense, animals do because we move around, we encounter new things all the time. And we, in fact, have to move in our world because you can't sit still. You must go find food. You're not a plant that sits there and lets the sun come and feed it. So, because of all this, we have a brain and we process information. Our senses, we've evolved senses to take in data about our surroundings and a brain to process that data and tell us what to do to survive. And the most basic kind of information processing is reflexive or computer style processing, fixed action patterns, they call them in, in the human world. That's a situation uh, where information or sensory data comes into you and you have a, a more or less built-in response to it. As, as I said earlier that uh, Darwin thought emotions work that way. So we do have some reflexive behavior that works that way. For example, when you're on autopilot driving to work, uh, if you've drive to work the same path every day, pretty soon you do it without thinking. It's automatic. You, hit, you, you reach a certain corner and you turn right, you don't even think about it. That's reflexive thinking. And that, that works in most of the animal world. Uh, for example, even behavior that seems to be thoughtful is often reflexive. If you see a, a goose, for example, a mother goose on the nest, and there's and, and an egg falls out, she'll take her neck and bring the egg back in, and it looks like a very nice motherly thing to do. But if you put a basketball there, she'll do the same thing. She, she, it's just a reflex that when something's there, she pulls it in. So that's the the most primitive uh, type of behavior. And emotions are important because they are a step above that. So uh, as humans, we've evolved a system of, of information processing that's rational and based on our own reason. But as we're processing information, taking in data and processing information to determine our, our actions, we have to, we, we, we use memories from our past and, and we use data that comes in through our senses of the present. And we have to take all that data. We can consider the data, the memories from the past as data also. You're taking in all that data about the present, the past, your prior beliefs, and you're using that to fuel the kind of rational A to B to C logic that your brain is, is using. And the way that you do that, the, the way that you weigh information 
and, and, and the amount of importance of information and even whether or not you pick your brain in an unconscious level picks this or that information for your conscious mind to work on is all determined by your current emotional state. So if you're in a state of fear, little sounds that you may not have noticed or thought about when you weren't in a state of fear are now going to be paramount in, in your analysis. And so in that way, uh, our, our thinking using emotion is a combination of, of the emotion shaping the way the logical thought works. And we've risen above this reflexive thinking. Sure. Well, you even mentioned at one point that the conscious mind can only handle about 10 bytes per second. Um, what, can you take us through the implications of that? Sure. Well, that, and that's one of the reasons that, that this, so, so what happens when, when you per- perceive the world is, is that you're getting a, a barrage of information, much more than the 10 bytes that your conscious mind can handle. And so most of your processing of the information that comes in, your visual, auditory information, um, factual information about the person that you may be talking to and so forth, that gets processed at an unconscious level. And it gets, it gets your unconscious mind creates a, a, a picture of the world and then transfers it to your conscious mind, which then works with it. And your emotions are very important in, in exactly what, how, that's, how that's happening and what gets, what, what gets shifted to your, to your conscious mind. So I said a second ago, you may not notice the noise if you're not in the state of fear. Yep. You're, 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 you, 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 can't, you can't notice all the noises and all the vi- visuals around you. Your, your conscious mind doesn't have the bandwidth. So the selection that's done by your unconscious is dependent on your emotional state. So when you're in a hunger state, certain things will be brought to your consciousness. When you're in a fear state, other things will be brought into your consciousness. If you're hungry and walking down a dark street and you you hear or see someone in the shadows uh, behind you, you suddenly go to a fear state, the, the hunger disappears. Now you're in a different state of mind and the decisions you make in the hunger state versus the fear state are totally different. They seem like rational decisions based on whatever the, whatever A and B and C are, but your logic is changed because you're weighing A differently, B differently, and C differently based on your emotion state. So emotions and and logical reasoning go hand in hand. They 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 can't be separated. Okay, well that makes sense because you were talking about homeostatic emotions earlier, including hunger. And I admit when I read the book, I was a little thrown at first that uh, sexual desire and and uh, hunger and so forth were now considered emotions. Um, but I, I can see the logic based on where you're going with this. Right, and 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 Damasio was a, a a pioneer in that. By the way, uh, you mentioned him earlier, so uh, kudos to him. But yeah, it's really, <laughs> you know, and and in the modern way of thinking, and the person um, whose whose research I uh, admire most is uh, Ralph Adolphs at Caltech, and, and so he calls uh, emotions a a functional state of of mind, which is basically what I've been saying that that you, if your mind is an information processor the it's not it, it, an information processor does not just have logic a implies b and b implies c means a implies c that's logic but to process the information in the world for a for an organism you need to be able to evaluate things about a and b and c choose which a b and c you're even going to recognize before you start the processing so that that that's what he means by a functional state if you're in a in an anxiety state uh, you, you know, you're, you're, that works one way. If you're in a joy state, that works in a different way. Sure. So I want to go back to, to um, Darwin just one last time, because of course he wrote the book, uh, Facial Expressions in Man and Animals. 
and uh, you know held at that time that each emotion had a characteristic, consistent expression across cultures. Now, I know so- someone who's practiced facial coding that, in fact, there's only about oh, 12 or 13 of the expressions in Dr. Paul Ekman's uh, system that really potentially go to one emotion. Many of them go to more than one emotion. So it's already kind of cracked open in a way that maybe Darwin wouldn't have anticipated. But based on the the revolution since 2010, where do you, how do you see facial coatings, uh, relevance, validity, uh, so forth? How does it hold up? And I, I asked that in part because I was also amazed that there was a guy you mentioned in the book named Kent Berridge, whose expertise is interpreting rats' facial expressions. <laughs> right. It's uh, interesting. Uh, yeah. He could tell you if the rat's having fun. So. Yeah. I mean, I do politicians. You know, they're fairly, fairly close, perhaps. But, yeah. Uh, I think you, you guys <laughs> probably have the same set of skills. So, um, well, um, so as you alluded to, the, the idea that, that there are – okay, let me back up and say Darwin uh, studied uh, in, in his work – he studied facial expressions in, in many, many animals. And he found that, he, you know, he found that there were, that's where he got his, uh, his categorization of emotion. And he found that there were, that there were certain common, uh, there were certain facial expressions that seemed to serve common purposes, like a, a wolf might be snarling and that that's to warn another wolf. Don't, don't screw with me, you know? Um, or uh, some animal may have another expression or a sound it makes to warn uh, others of his species or his group that there, there's a day that he spotted a danger and so forth. And Darwin believed that, that, that emotions are very closely tied to facial expressions. And uh, the purpose of emotion was very closely tied to facial and vocal expressions because it was a way of signaling and, and communicating amongst the animals. And, and, Darwin believed that humans, having the power of logical thought, had risen above that, no longer needed the emotion. It was vestigial, more or less like a uh, appendix. And so that he he believed that they were often more often counterproductive than productive. He didn't recognize the the the, the uh, use of emotion, the importance of emotion. Today, we found that you know although there are some common elements of, of expressions that are tied to certain uh, emotions correlated in some way, it's really not that tight, just like the categorization doesn't totally work. The fear, different kinds of fear, uh, there's different kinds of fear and there's overlap between fear and anxiety and so forth. And the same thing with the facial expressions, we find that they're really not as cut and dried as Ekman had originally at least uh, uh, um, believed. And uh, Recent studies, uh, I think, that have gone around the world to different cultures, and these are not easy studies to do because if you know you you can't go to another culture that shares one, um, you 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 can't go to another country that just because it's another country, it's not another culture. We we have such cultural uh, interaction that that because a German might frown uh, the same way that an American does doesn't really tell you much. But if you go out into into the bush or into areas in uh, Africa or uh, New Guinea where, where you find tribes that have had limited contact with Westerners or with other, uh, other uh, civilizations, that's where you can really study these things. And they find that really there are, there aren't, um, there is not that universality uh, that, that was originally uh, believed. So I think, I think people today tend to, to, 
think that that's a lot looser than than was originally believed. Okay, uh, but do you see it as still having some validity? I mean, I, I ask that in part because um, uh, someone I think you've you've published a paper with, who's certainly a well-established okay, name, Lisa Lisa Feldman Barrett. Um, you know, as kind of beaten beaten up as shall we say on on Ekman. Um, so, but you also mentioned that her school called the Constructionist, uh, maybe a bit more out there than than at least some of the field these days of psychologists and neuroscientists. So, trying to get a feel of you know who are these different blocks beyond the Constructionist and uh, kind of where you fall. So. So Lisa is is the leader, I would say, the leading person in that construction. Ralph, in, in his Ralph Adolph's in his era, that's really the one that I tend to most ascribe to. And I think Lisa and, and Ralph, uh, are, over time, have gotten a little closer in their beliefs. One each of them moving slightly toward the other, but Ralph has the idea of emotions as a as a um, functional state of calculation of your brain. I think uh, Damasio is an important person too, who really takes the point of view of uh, the, the the body, uh, the connection between the body and emotions, and emotions as as promoting homeostasis. So the idea being that uh, that life itself, it, the purpose of life is to uh, is to fend off disorder or entropy, as we'd say in physics, uh, to to keep an organization there. In order to be alive. You have to fight off the nature's natural tendency to turn everything to dust, as the Bible said. You know, sure. So, so you have cells in your body; they have um, membranes around them to hold the liquids inside them. You have vessels to hold the blood, and and so forth. You're you're a very highly organized set of chemicals. Whereas um, the natural tendency in in the world would be for all that to fall apart, and you just to turn into a blob. That's that's the natural tendency in, in nature. And so life, the purpose of life is to keep things the same, homeostasis. And so um, Antonio takes the point, you know, the point of view in thinking of emotion as, as that your body's job is to read the state of the body, the current state, physical state of the body, and also read the environment and to judge when there are threats to that and to counteract them. And in my book, I discuss all these different points of view, and I think I form a pretty, pretty neat, uh, cool synthesis of of them. Take you know, um, finding a way to to find agreement and uh, common ground uh, in order to understand for a, a lay people what 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 emotions likely are, and that was one of my big, I think, challenges in writing the book. Sure. So if there's a term constructionist, is there a term for the, the camp that Ralph Adolphs is in? Although it sounds like you said he's kind of moved a bit over, over time. Yeah, I, I, I don't I don't know that there is um, a handle for it. OK, I, yeah, I haven't. I mean, hers is the only and same thing with uh, Damasio. Damasio. Well, this is a more specific theory, but he, you know, uh, he had they call the somatic theory uh, for the body. Um, I think he's that was in more of uh, something that has evolved with him. So it's not uh, his original theory anymore. So if you say that it's an outdated uh, theory, I think, but um, yeah, there tend to be these movements. They don't, they don't always have uh, simple names. I I think uh, with Lisa's it's, it's natural to call it constructivist because it's so, so much that (laughs) I'm literally, (laughs) and I said, I mentioned earlier how your unconscious mind, and I wrote that book subliminal, how your unconscious mind rules your behavior. And that's, 
that's really the point of that book is, is how your, your brain, because of all the data coming in that you can't handle on the conscious level, how your brain takes in that data and constructs a, a, a um, imaginary reality, a fantasy that you th- take as reality. And it does that in, in your visual perception. It does that in your social perception of other people. Uh, it does that in your perception of investments. And it does that in emotion. So she, so, so she focuses on how your mind does that, how it creates that illusion of emotion and how we then, because of our whatever culture we're in, identify and categorize it into this overly, oversimplified uh, situation. Oh, fair enough. Um, I, I had a couple other questions. I'm going to maybe run this a little longer than I do some other ones because I, I so enjoyed your book, including the sense of humor in your book. Um, you know, the, the person who was, uh, taken to eating even parts of an airplane and so forth. And, uh, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of wonderful wry humor in the book, um, which I think listeners and readers would enjoy a lot. Um, one of the things you bring up is you said shame is one of the most harmful emotions. I wonder if you can say a bit about that and, and why that's so. Well, two, two social emotions that are related are shame and guilt, and they have to do with acts that you consider heinous. If guilt is, is an, uh, if a reaction you have when you feel you've done something that harmed somebody else, and shame is, is a reaction where other people think you've done something to harm uh, other heinous act. And shame, unfortunately, is a, well, guilt too. I mean, we, we, if you're Catholic or Jewish, and I'm Jewish, you're, you know famously that, 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 that you're brought up with guilt, right? You have yep. parents uh, laying guilt trips on you. And I think shame is another, uh, as I said, it's related, and it's another emotion that, unfortunately, parents all too often really lay on thick to their, to their kids in an unfortunate way. And one of the, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Greg Cohn is a, a forensic psychiatrist here in Los Angeles that I interviewed for the book and uh, learned a lot about how Unfortunately, when parents, especially narcissistic parents, uh, have a habit of laying a thick coat of uh, shame on their kids and, and how that really is detrimental to, to their future because how that, uh, that amount of shame when you're a child affects all the different emotions that you feel when you're grown up. So you're, in the book, I, I have a chapter on emotional profile in which I talk about how, you know, even though we all even though the categorization of emotions is a bit loosey-goosey, uh, it's useful for, for talking about emotions. And even though as humans, we all share certain tendencies of, of, uh, of these emotions, there are a lot of, obviously, there are a lot of individual differences in how much we, we tend to feel this emotion or that emotion. Some people are prone to anger. Some people are always happy. And so the emotional profile, I, I, I actually found a, a number of scientifically developed questionnaires that have to do with uh, your tendency toward one emotion or another. And they're really interesting because, first of all, just reading the questionnaires helps you understand more what we mean by that emotion. So if you read the questionnaire, you can see the kinds of questions scientists use to probe your tendency toward an emotion. But they also help you learn about yourself, which helps you relate to the ideas I'm talking about in the book. So uh, when, if you take those questionnaires and you 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 can see what your profile is, and and people who grew up with a lot of shame, they have they have a lot of um, they they have a lot of bad feelings and um, 
and problems in, in later life, unfortunately. Sure. Um, one of the, uh, another motion just to, you know, use those terms, because I guess what else do we have to fall back on in some ways, um, is anger. Because you talk about anger, you know, you're really seeking to gain an advantage in resolving conflict. You can be less tolerant. And, and I couldn't help as I, I was reading that part of the book, uh, you talk about you, you have less sense of a common good. And of course, in trying to tackle COVID-19 and the battles over vaccines and masking and so forth, it, it sure seems like our country is, is uh, in the throes of anger often, and the notion of a common good seems to be evaporating, at least in some circles or circumstances. Uh, anything you might want to say there? Yeah, and that's unfortunate that anger has, uh, I, I think, become the uh, uh, the, the uh, product that's sold by certain media outlets, and and uh, they use it to you know to to get their ratings to get people addicted to, to it and 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 push the ratings. But in, you know we have to think about these emotions in terms of our ancestral environment, and they each had a purpose. We only survived as a species because we hung together, banded together. We, as individuals, were really not uh, fit to to live in in the environment that we were in. But as a group using group cooperation, we were able to catch the prey we wanted, build the structures or the the, the, um, the shelter that we needed and so forth, find the resources. And we did that by cooperating. And a lot of our emotions are there as, as social glue to help us cooperate with each other. Still though, when, when, when you had a conflict with somebody and often, by the way, these different uh, nomadic groups of humans fought with each other when they would inter- encounter each other and they were very uh, brutal. So you you needed to have uh, self you know defense mechanisms, and anger is one of those uh, emotions that has to do with that. That uh, w- when someone is doing something that's a threat to you, what is your reaction? Your self preservation reaction. One possible reaction is is anger, and anger has the effect of propelling you to take action against that person. So that's one way to deter somebody. The other you know other way fear where you might flee from that person, but but that uh, the, the anger. Uh, emotion is there to is there to propel you toward uh, showing aggression toward the person and 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 discouraging it through your through your anger and and as i said uh, uh, each emotion is is a, is a state of your mental calculations and when you're in this state of anger your calculations let's say if they're having to do with other members of your group or members of your society are different than than when you're not in a state of anger. And in, in this case, when you're in a state of anger, your calculations are more self-centered and less group-centered. So you'll give different worth to information and uh, and sensory input based on that. And, and even if, apart from the subject of your ang- anger, any situ- any any situation that or, or decisions you have to make about your group are changed as long as you're still in that state of anger. Yeah, no, I think based on that stoking of anger, whether it's, you know, well, we can think of certain media that will perhaps not mention here, but uh, that's proven to be a formula that they've very much taken to the bank over time, and it has its implications for society. Um, Two last things, maybe. One is uh, you noted for us that in the book, and I thought it was fascinating, that liking and wanting have two distinct but interconnected subsystems within our reward system. Um, that's that's fascinating and probably a little complex, and maybe you can take us down that path a bit. So 
the most fun, the more fundamental of the two is, is wanting. If uh, you didn't want, so wanting meaning that you're going to take action toward, toward obtaining or toward doing. And that is necessary for all animals to have, all animals have that in their, in their reward system. Uh, in particular, the mammals have a, have all have a kind of a shared similar uh, reward system. And wanting is, is, is necessary because uh, if you didn't want food, if you didn't act to obtain it, then you would, you would starve. But you might ask why, and why would, why would we like, why is it necessary to like the food? If we want it, isn't that enough? And, and that's really very interesting. And people used to think that wanting and liking were, if not the same thing, they, that they, they had the same function and the same origin in the brain. And then it was discovered that, that they, actually that's not true. And that has to do with this guy you mentioned who was an expert on reading. <laughs> that, that's how it got started, an expert on, on reading rat faces. But um, liking is a more sophisticated uh, uh, um, system to, to propel you to get something. So whereas wanting could be a hardwired that, that, that when you're hungry, you when you when your blood sugar is low, you go for sugar. Liking is more is more nuanced and sophisticated. And it's a separate system in the brain. And the way liking works is when liking circuits are triggered, they feed into your wanting uh, circuits. So, but they're not they're not as direct as the wanting circuit. So if A triggers a wanting circuit for B, then that always happens. A triggers it for B. That's the more reflexive behavior I talked about earlier. Emotions are the are are a step above that, and and the wanting liking is similar to that. Uh, liking doesn't automatically trigger your action to get it. It, it it's just a, gives you a piece of data that your brain brain uses to calculate whether or not you want to get the thing. So instead of A triggers wanting to get B, A triggers liking, and then that goes into your conscious mind, and you and you and you mix that up with uh, your current situation. Uh, your sensory data, your knowledge of maybe uh, this is not good for you. Sure. <laughs> and, 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 and past experiences, memories, right, all of that. Yeah. And that leads to a much more nuanced decision about whether you go after B. So it's instead of being A directly to B, this is a more sophisticated system where A uh, is le- less direct and other other um, factors can come in and affect whether you actually go after that thing. And it was fascinating, the whole history and, and, and the science of how people realized that those were two different things. In particular, that they were put animals in situations where they liked something because this is like Kent Barrage could see that they were happy when they were eating it, but they didn't want it, meaning that they would not go for it. They would not, there was something that they liked because when you shoved it in their mouth there, they look happy, but they wouldn't take a step toward it. And then they also found situations where, where uh, animals um, wanted something that they didn't like. So they, they, they were able to, to, to find situations where an animal makes a face of, of displeasure, but yet will go after that. And that sounds absurd, but humans do that too. It's called addiction. A lot of times people uh, who are drug addicts uh, or cigarette smokers will tell you that they don't even like, they don't like the cigarettes or they don't like uh, taking the feeling anymore when they take their drug. And yet they can't stop doing it. So they have the wanting and not the liking. So uh, if you look hard enough, you can see that, that it goes both ways. They must be separate because you can like without wanting. You can want without liking. Sure. And I, I've seen disgust expressions uh, on, the, on the faces of some of those people uh, in situations like cigarette smoking, et cetera. 
um, you know, which is obviously kind of, you know, you've been repulsed, repelled. Um, <laughs> it's rotten, but uh, there you are. You're still you're still addicted. Yeah. And so that Nancy Reagan was wrong. You know, uh, uh, you can't just say no. I, I don't mean to, to, to say that that you shouldn't you should fight addiction and, and it is within your power, but it's just not that simple. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One last thing, maybe because someone just asked me this the other day on the tennis court, um, the old chestnut of nature versus nurture, uh, based on the revolution since 2010, uh, any update on where we might be in that kind of debate? Well, that, that there's been a lot of work and, and that's a technology and actually a field that I didn't mention, but it also is a field that's become very important in the emotion revolution and that's epigenetics. So we, uh, the, the real exciting news in that area is that things that happen in your environment can actually change the way your genes are expressed. And, and so, so they can have environmental, um, environmental factors can change. They don't necessarily change, mutate your genes, but they change the way your genes work and that can be passed down through generations. And so that's pretty amazing thing. So that, for example, uh, Parents who uh, don't give love to their kids uh, actually change them genetically in, in a way, and then when the and when that when those kids have kids, that gets passed on, and it, it becomes a, a cycle that's hard to break. Yeah, no, it makes me think of uh, John Balby's work on attachment theory. I think at one point you said in the book that uh, particularly the early years can really lay down the emotional fingerprint. Right, it is very important. The first two years, and and but. You know, it's never too late to start trying to reverse that. Sure. But it's very hard when I feel bad when kids had a, a childhood, uh, the first two or ten years where they're not loved and not uh, treated well, and and then you know you try to compensate for that, and and um, it, it's difficult. Sure, I think it's Philip Larkin's poem. It starts, you know, man piss, passes on misery to man. It deepens like the coastal shelf. So get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. <laughs> That, that's, the, that's, that's the closing stanza from one of the most pessimistic poets we've ever had. And we should have something more upbeat. Uh, <laughs> no, and, and, we shall, and we shall in closing here because I, I need to move to that. So, Leonard, I want to thank you so much for your time. It's a wonderful book. I really encourage people to, to read it. Uh, again, it's called Emotional, How Feelings Shape Our Thinking. Uh, the publisher is Pantheon. Um, this has been episode number 91, The Emotion Revolution. Uh, you can find uh, this episode and others by going to my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com or to the New Books Network and search under Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. So, so Leonard, here's, here's uh, maybe a nicer close than uh, Philip Larkin. So there's a wonderful quote from Helen Keller who says, the best and most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. Any last closing thoughts? I think that's beautiful. Well, I think we should leave it with that. Okay, fair enough. So thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you. Thank you.